Everybody, 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 drop your box. Welcome back to Drop Your Buffs. I'm Sean Ross. I'm Evan Ross Katz. And today we are not talking about Survivor. We are talking about Survivor alum Mike White's The White Lotus Season 2, Episode 6, Abductions. We're a little late to the game here in Season 2. But Evan, why did you want to talk about White Lotus Season 2? What are your thoughts? Like, give it to me. Well, it's funny because the original working title for The White Lotus was Survivors Mike White's The White Lotus, and then they ended up sort of just (laughs) skimming it down to The White Lotus. Um, I wanted to talk about this show because I think for a lot of gay people out there, or perhaps LGBTQ plus people, or even perhaps people outside of that large community, um, there are cultural moments that take place that sort of become our personalities sometimes. Um, I think a great example of that was, and just like that, in 2021, um, there are myriad other examples that, you know, we could talk to. I think in the past, it was like, you know, celebrities, like your Britney Spears's, and I think over time, it's morphed into um, cultural moments, uh, you know, whether they be television series, movies, etc. And so for better or for worse, The White Lotus season one became my personality in 2021, but it was only six weeks, right? And so this has been sort of prolonged because there was the announcement that there was a second season. There was the announcement that Coolidge was coming back. There was the announcement of Aubrey Plaza and then the rest of the cast. And then we had the trailer and then we had the premiere date and now we have the episodes. And so I think that you and I are people, you know, we're friends. We're always talking about Survivor, but we're always going back and forth about other things, whether it be Alanis Morissette or the Spice Girls <laughs> or what have you. We also both have our funny relationships with Jennifer Coolidge. Um, and so I just thought that this would be like a fun platform to do the thing that you and I would be voice memoing about otherwise, but just put a mic in front of us. Yeah, Mike White. The thing is... <laughs> What's really cool about this is that we have this podcast that is specifically about Survivor. We, yeah, we branched off a little bit, started covering Australian Survivor, started covering the challenge, Survivor-adjacent properties. And there is no property more Survivor-adjacent than the White Lotus. And despite the fact that it is not reality TV, so a little bit outside of this podcast's wheelhouse, Uh, Both of us have been fans, both of season one and season two. I think there was a point in season two, I would say probably around episode three, certainly episode four, where we were kind of kicking ourselves that we hadn't been recapping it all along. And then the further it goes, the further we get down uh, the list of episodes, the harder it is to say like, okay, yeah, let's pull the trigger and just start recapping late in the game. But 
Here we are at episode six, and after that incredible episode five, which I talked about on the podcast uh, last week, that it, I just thought it was an absolutely perfect, transcendent piece of television, an all-time great episode of Prestige TV. Uh, I can't say enough good things about episode five. It was like, I wish that I was talking about this in public because I have so much to say and so much love for that episode of TV. And so we just thought, let, let's jump in episode six. Who cares? We make the rules. Nobody we is. make the rules. Yeah. And we, we had an idea originally where we were like, let's do an episode where we, where we recap episodes one through five yeah. collectively. <laughs> um, for any longtime listeners of this podcast, you know that a uh, quality that Sean and I both share is that we are long-winded. So the idea of us who can already take an hour-long episode of Survivor and talk- A 45-minute episode yeah, of Yeah, exactly. 45-minute talk for- two hours plus at times the thought of us trying to do that with five hours of mike white content was laughable even that we were considering it so rather than do that we we, we are jumping in with episode six obviously i think we will be touching on moments that take place mm-hmm. throughout the season we will do a finale episode next week we will have a special episode featuring people involved with the show, which I don't want to say too much about right now and because, you know, things happen, but we have that episode. And then likely we will do a mailback episode uh, around The White Lotus and perhaps we'll do more with The White Lotus. Maybe we'll go back and rewatch one through five. Maybe we'll go back and do season one. Maybe we'll have other cast members on the show down the line. Maybe we'll have Survivor alumni come in and talk about The White Lotus. I mean, the possibilities are endless, but we're starting here today and seeing if we like doing this and more importantly, if you all like hearing it. So bear with us. Yes, the possibilities are endless. I would love to rewatch White Lotus season one. I would love to rewatch White Lotus season two. And we have a great place that we can do that. It's patreon.com forward slash drop your buffs. Mm, Absolutely. And you know, I will say, so I was uh, watching a little bit of season one today because I wanted to go back and re-familiarize myself with Greg's arc on the show, particularly because I was like, I forget how Greg was introduced. So I went back, Greg is introduced in season one, episode four of the show. He's actually trying to get into Tanya's room. in which time Tanya walks in on this and he cre- well, not creates this backstory, but he says to her, oh, sorry, I-, I just was drinking on the boat on my way over here. And that's why he's completely thrown off. And so immediately like my spidey sense went off and I was like, oh my God, like it all begins in this moment. However, uh, he then does key into the door, the room next door. So it's not as though he was really like trying to break in. And the other thought process is, and I guess we don't have confirmation of this from Mike White, but season one was built as an independent season of television with no thought of there being a second season, or so we think. So I think it's fair to say that like the Greg storyline that we're seeing play out in season two, I don't think that there are Easter eggs in season one that should be looked at too much. But not for nothing, uh, Tanya and Greg's last scene in season one is them discussing Greg's failing health and Tanya's delivery of the iconic line, death is the last immersive experience that she has not tried, Um, which I think, you know, seems like the kind of quote you want to put a pin in and, and then revisit right about now. I don't think it is relevant to what is happening on the show. But nonetheless, for anyone out there 
looking for more White Lotus, rewatch season one, particularly with an eye on Greg. It's sort of just fun. Um, it's a fun little exercise, if not like a rewarding one. You know, sometimes just something, uh, more White Lotus, the better. Yeah, well, the thing about this is going back and looking at season one and trying to determine whether there's any Easter eggs with Greg's character or anything that Tanya might have said. Uh, the thing is that you say, well, it was conceived of as an individual season of television without the idea of there being a season two, and then we got a season two. But once it's out there, once season two is out there, it doesn't matter what Mike White's intentions were anymore in season one, because he may have rewatched season one and said, hey, there's something here. This is an Easter egg that I didn't know I was putting in that I'm going to build another season off of. And so it's very much like a novel or like a song where, you know, it means something to the person as they're writing it. And then they put it out into the world and then they put more out into the world and you re-examine the new stuff based on the old stuff. It's very diving into Taylor Swift's discography. That's what it reminds me of. Yes, Yeah. Yes. And what's interesting too is like Mike White does very few interviews at all, let alone ones in which he dives deep into the work. He did several for season one. I don't think he's, he's done a few like little mini interviews around season two. I have yet to read like, you know, a big one. I think he's probably holding off on the big one because I think a lot of pieces will come together in the end. But I also feel like there's very much the reality in which, as you say, there are things that fans picked up on that weren't necessarily created with the intention that people have, you know, come to regard moments for. So I'm really curious for, I mean, I hope Mike does a long form interview around the show, sort of talking about which moments were built out, which moments were improvised by the actors in the moment, because I have heard that he does allow improv. Um, And then which moments did fans kind of create a there there in which there wasn't one by design? Yeah, totally. And I should say, we've been teasing like potential interviews. Mike White is not one of those at this time. Do we want him to come on this podcast to talk Survivor and White Lotus? A hundred percent. If anybody can get in touch with him, please do, because we would love to have him on. And I think one day he will be on because, I mean, he is a not only an iconic Survivor player, but a huge Survivor fan. So I... I I'm very much looking forward to the day when we will have Mike White on. Uh, it's just maybe not around the corner. So just tempering well, expectations here. No, it, it could be just well, around the corner. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying it's not in our calendar. Yes, yes, yes. Well, the funny thing is there are like two access points to Mike White right now, um, mm-hmm. both of which are untapped. One uh, would be his email address, which someone sent to me. I keep imagining the intro email that I write to him, but I kind of feel like you get like one chance at uh-huh. like that email. And I just don't <laughs> want the response to be, how did you get my email address? Who you know what you? I mean? Who like there's a world in which person. that, yeah. yeah, that can be an invasive way uh-huh. to uh, make a, an introduction. The other is Jennifer Coolidge, who, who did promise me a connection to Mike White last uh-huh. year. And I say untapped just because, so I did a favor for Coolidge and this was, this was seen as the, uh, you know, as a thank you for the favor. Um, it's just not something that's like, I, I, yes, I could bring it up, but I, I, I am a big, uh, a firm believer in things happen when they are meant to happen. I do believe Mike White will come into our, our universe. Um, I just don't know when, and I'm, I'm kind of waiting on it to, to happen on its own versus like pushing for it to happen. Um, 
cut to like a week from now when I'm like sending out the email <laughs> drunk at night being like, hey, Mike. Um, but for right now, I'm kind of like, it will happen when it's meant to happen, but I'm optimistic that it will. Yeah, I think it will happen one day. Mike, are you listening? I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't think he listens to recaps of The White Lotus. Yeah, but this is a Survivor podcast, and I would That's not true. put it past Mike White to listen to a Survivor recap podcast, so. You never know. Okay, get in touch. Okay, so wh- how are you feeling about season two then? I think we've touched a little bit on it, but uh, maybe in contrast to season one, just your general feelings. How did you feel when it was starting? Start middle, where we are now. Mine have certainly changed, so I'd like to hear Yeah, what yeah, think. yeah. For sure. I know when I first watched the trailer, um, I was a little bit confused about like how the show was going to build on itself because this is a second season of a show that is not, well, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think this is like an anthology series. I guess it is, but it's not being like billed as one in the same way like American Horror Story is like sold to you as like, it's all under the banner of this thing, but all the rules are thrown out where it's like, we do have these familiar tropes. Um, case, I mean, the most obvious being the fact that we are staying at another White Lotus resort, but also the, we open with a dead body. There are these familiar beats that have been part of both seasons that sort of unify this series. And so I had a lot of questions around, you know, was season one lightning in a bottle? How are they going to do that again? And we fell in love with so many of those characters and those actors in season one. This was a cast comprised largely of actors that I didn't know. There were many that I did, but but more that I didn't. And I didn't know how I was going to feel about them. And so I think for me, especially uh, when, you know, knowing that Murray Bartlett could not return, and I really feel like Murray Bartlett was one of the big breakout stars of season one, I was kind of like, okay, how do we do this again? And then, like I said, the trailer did not immediately grip me. But it's funny because I went back and watched the trailer again today. And I think it's so much more of a satisfying trailer to watch now because all of like the thing about the white lotus is i don't think you want two and a half minutes of it i think you want a full hour or if you're like me you want it to become your entire personality so i feel like taking this season and like uh smushing it down into a trailer did not was not behoove of the show like it didn't do the show any justice or any favors um so i'm really glad that like I do think the first two episodes in particular were a slow burn I think it took us a while to get to the pacing that began with episode three all this to say um I'm extremely in for season two I we have to let it finish before we can do this season two or season one you know uh choose you can only choose one decision but at this present moment like right now I'm a season two girly like I feel like they I feel like the themes that the show explored in season one, season two took that, accelerated it, put a little Molly, put a little Ambien, put a little, uh, what was the other drug? This uh, 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 starts with an A. They put Coke this week. Advil. Oh, Coke, but also Advil. <laughs> Advil. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Daphne needed the Advil at dinner, which by the way, we should talk about the pill theme in the show. But anyway, it's like he put all these pills together and I just think that what was created is, yeah, I mean, I think it's nothing short of a masterpiece. So I am... Can you tell I like season two of The White Lotus? Yeah, I feel the same. I feel the same. I feel like I loved season one. Uh, I I feel like sort of despite what should have been. um, And I don't know exactly how to describe why, because it feels to me like quite a straight show on paper. 
Uh, I know uh, other than like the Murray Bartlett stuff, like on paper, this is a show about sad straight people. Uh, for the most part. And like, typically that wouldn't really appeal to me. Uh, Not that all my content has to be gay. Obviously I'm watching Survivor. But I think that with the White Lotus, it's like we have this queer auteur of the White Lotus and a lot of the exploration done, the really meaty exploration is around heterosexual relationships. Uh, So despite all of that, I did enjoy it. And I think that... We got some really great character moments in season one, but I don't know that it, I I really enjoyed it. I'm I'm sounding like I'm down on it, but was I going to put it up there with like my all time favorite seasons of television? No. Now season two, I was all on board for another season of The White Lotus. And like you, I found, you know, I enjoyed the first couple episodes, but I was getting to know these people. And it was after episode three, and particularly after the jet skiing scene, where there's sort of eerie music playing over it, and they're doing this game of chicken, and will they or won't they? That really set me off, where I was like, oh, this is something really special. And, you know, it was not about dialogue. It was not really about a a particular situation. It was just this sort of uncomfortable feeling that I had watching that scene that really gripped me. And it was like, from there, I feel like it's just been going 100 miles an hour. And every episode has like amped it up just a little bit more to the point. And it may have climaxed for me at episode five, where it's just every single scene had me feeling completely on edge uh, for each for their own reasons. But I felt like Everything had the potential to crumble in a second. If a character said the wrong thing, saw the wrong thing, did the wrong thing, everything, this entire world could crumble. And that really, really gripped me in a way that uh, very few television shows have. You know, it reminds me of the comeback because I feel like so many people's reaction to the comeback when it premiered in 2005 was that they had a hard time watching it because it made them so uncomfortable watching Valerie constantly be being put in these situations in which she wasn't aware of the temperature of the room and having to navigate this like radically changing world that <clears throat> she thought she had a handle on and like very much did not. I feel similarly about The White Lotus where it's like, I get that people feel that level of discomfort and that is by design and it is meant to make you feel uncomfortable. So I think it's it's funny that there's like two kinds of audiences, I think. Um, the ones like you and I, where it's like, we feel that and we're gripped by it. And then I think there are other people who that anxiety, they feel that so much in them that it, they reject the art being presented because of the feeling that mm. it, it gives them. The other thing I wanted to say, just connecting the season one, season two conversation, I feel like the 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 murder mystery aspect of season one felt a little bit more shoehorned into the show. I think it had a particularly dissatisfying final act in that like we'd been presented this death. I also don't think there was as much like speculation about who died from season one because it really just could have been anyone. Whereas like this season has been laying out clues right and left. I don't think that was so much the case in season one. And I think this season has done a much better job of keeping these plot lines mostly separated with some, you know, characters moving throughout, such as Lucia. But for the most part, they're separated. And yet there's all of this plausibility around most of these people being both the murderer and those who are murdered. And I say those because I rewatched the premiere episode and though Daphne discovers one body, 
you know, Rocco then says that there are multiple deaths, but that's not necessarily multiple deaths in the water. Um, mm -hmm. That could be something else. Also, I just want to mention, while we're mentioning this opening scene, which I rewatched today, as I said, Daphne runs to the shore after discovering the bodies in the water and runs into someone's arms who it could be Cameron and it could not. I literally, I paused it several times and it's like, there's a great case to be made that it's Cameron and there's a great case that it's not. It's also unclear if she's, because mind you, Angelina and Kara, that whole scene that took place in the first episode, Cameron was not present. She seemed to be mm -hmm. at the beach alone. Mm -hmm. But then like when she runs, it's hard to say, A, if it's Cameron, but also if she's running to him or if this is someone who ran over to her, that part is unclear. Um, but I think an important detail that we will, you know, put a pin in until we reconvene next week. A very important detail because I feel like whoever is in the water and yes Rocco says there are other bodies right so there are I would say at least three people dead and it doesn't have to be murders right and that, that's the other thing is right. especially in season one there was just so much speculation about w whether somebody was murdered who was the murderer etc etc all that turned out to be really for naught like in the end, like you say, it was a little bit anticlimactic in that we had this mystery that didn't necessarily have to be there because the death was, I don't want to say inconsequential, but I think there was a lot more speculation than it deserved. Whereas in this season, it seems to be the case that we are approaching at least a plan to murder potentially uh, that is a lot more clue-based, a lot more sort of um, a, a meant to fuel speculation online. It's meant to fuel conversation. And that's a distinct difference in feel. I'm still grappling with how I feel about that because I had these expectations going into this season that the death would be similar to that in season one where it wouldn't be some broad conspiracy to murder. Uh, where it seems like we are getting that this season, whether that actually pans out and we do have some conspiracy or actual murder of Tanya, say. I don't know if I buy that, but I think the death would be related to that conspiracy. Uh, but all of that to say that whoever is found in the water, I don't believe that it could be any one of the couples because I feel like Daphne's reaction wouldn't be appropriate to finding either Cameron or her friends dead in the water. Certainly she had a big reaction, but I feel like if you found your loved one or friend in the water, your first response might not be run away. Okay, fair. Uh Point, counterpoint. Um, I don't think she knew, I think she was reacting to the discovery of a dead body um, without discerning who that dead body is. And is now the point where I can share my theory or do we not? Like, can I? Is this a safe space? You tell me. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> well, can you share a theory at the end or does it, or do you want to, I don't, I don't care. There's no I think it, here. I'm going to share it now because I think it's relevant sure. to exactly what we're okay. saying. So yeah, I think it. that Cameron is one of those who was murdered. And mm. the reason I believe that is because there is and a you're scene. Using the word mur you're using the word murdered. So do you believe every body is a murder? No, I do not. I think the okay. grandpa is also dead, but I also, okay. so it's interesting you say that because I think there is someone who is going to be murdered. And I think that there is, um, what's it called? Uh, something damage, collateral damage 
damage. Mm. Ah. I think there's collateral damage that might be part of this or something, but it's like, I think there's something to like, the grandpa's storyline resolving in this episode more or less and the continued him falling and bumping yeah. his head so often that like feels like there's something there. But if not, if not the grandpa, yes, I, I think it is something not connected. The reason that I think Cameron dies, and listen, I'm not the first person to discover this, so I'm not like taking credit for this, but in this episode, I was watching with several of my friends, and in the scene towards the very beginning, when Cameron gets in bed with Daphne, you see a tattoo on Theo James's leg. And I was like, that's odd. I just don't see Theo James as having this tattoo. And that tattoo is that of a little bird. I don't know birds. Are you a bird person? Not a bird person. Okay, maybe a blue jay, like a smaller bird. Okay. Um, and I was like, that's unusual. And then I was uh, re-watching the episode today, going through the credits, and I noticed that when Simona Tabasco, uh, who plays Lucia, during her title card, uh, there is that exact same bird, and it is in the mouth of a tiger. Um, and I think that knowing what I know about Mike White... I think that that is a big clue. I think that that shot was not accidental. And I think that that shot indicates the fact that Cameron dies. And also, I think the big mislead that's happening right now is around the Harper and Ethan plot. And especially in the scenes for next week and seeing the fact that Cameron and Ethan are going to come to blows in the water, that would make us think that it's Ethan that's going to potentially murder Cameron. Um, but I think that the infidelity, which by the way, um, I did want to mention briefly the statues, which we have been recurring, mm -hmm. but there's been the Testa de Mora, um, which popped up in the very first episode and again in this this episode. And for those that don't know the story with the Testa de Mora, it's a story of a man having an affair with a woman on an island and not making it home from the trip because he's killed by the person he had an affair with. And I think that the mislead is that that affair is between Cameron and Harper when I think the quote-unquote affair is between Cameron and Lucia. That is what I think. Hmm. So you're suggesting that Mia kills Cameron. No, Lucia kills Cameron. Oh, Lucia kills yes. Cameron. Yes, but hold on, because you mentioned Mia, I do think there's some unresolved business with the piano player, who we have not seen in several mm -hmm. episodes, yeah. who, Lu who, excuse me, who Mia almost killed, who might come back seeking revenge and I think it is notable the fact that <laughs> all the names are now going through my head. I'm like, um, I think it's notable the fact that Mia, through this affair with Valentina, now has potential access to the master key card that can get her and by proxy likely Lucia into any room in the hotel. I think that will play a factor into this uh, finale. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'll buy it. The other thing. So, do you, do you see okay. any danger for Tanya, Greg, Portia, Jack, Quentin? No, um, I think that's a big mislead because of. I just think the pieces to this puzzle were so easily solved. Not easily, but because this is a really like uh, this is a really smart fandom. I've discovered, um, which is a nice. Um, they're much smarter than me. Every theory I've read, I'm like, oh, I'm going to say they're that. much smarter than something else, which I was going to read as well. But anyway, um. This is a really smart fandom, and I feel like they picked up on the Greg stuff a few episodes back, and I think that I this is my whole thing with this is like Mike White knows what he's doing at every turn, 
And I just think that something like the Greg Quentin plot and the fact that there are so many clues dropped from episode one with him being so upset about Portia being there, Tanya revealing the fact that Greg was insistent that they come to Sicily, the conversation about the prenup, the phone call outside on the deck at the end of episode two. It was like so heavy handed that I think that that like no one like it's to a point where no one would be shocked if it was Tanya that died. And so I think that that is the very reason why it would not be Tanya dying. And Mike White is a bisexual man who has the same love for Jennifer Coolidge that we all do. And additionally, a friendship with her. We have great reason to believe that a lot of the reason why she was brought back for season two besides the fan love for her is because Mike White wanted to spend more time with his friend Jennifer Coolidge. We have a confirmed season three of this show. Mike White is not going to kill off Jennifer Coolidge, both because of queer people and the general public's love for Coolidge and the fact that he's not going to want to pass up an opportunity to spend another five months with her because he's a smart man. <laughs> the only thing that I would rebut that with is that it is entirely possible that Jennifer Coolidge would like to die on screen. T. T, 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 and um, <laughs> as I, I don't disagree with you there. I just, I know that Mike would be aware how angry the fandom would be if Jennifer Coolidge were killed off. Now, not to go like completely galaxy brain here, but there is the possibility that like you kill off Tanya, bring Jennifer Coolidge back in season three as a new character. It would not be. <laughs> no. Well, I'm just saying like, it's an option. I'm just saying I feel pretty adamantly if there's a season three of this show, Jennifer Coolidge is on it. Do you see any world in which Jennifer Coolidge, let's say hypothetically, Tanya dies, Jennifer Coolidge is no longer in the White Lotus and a new character from season two recurs as in season three, and we pass the baton. And then in season three, we pass the baton to somebody else. Well, that's implying that there's a season four, right? Well. I know I am with you. I love there's it. There's potential. Uh, yeah, I think that's a possibility. Yes, I absolutely do. And I, I would, there's so many characters I'd love to run with. I think the most obvious would be Harper, but my God, Daphne would be really fun to keep exploring mm -hmm. as would all of the female characters and many of the male characters. Um, but again, I just, I just don't see Coolidge dying. And in addition to everything I just said, um, I think the plot has been leading us to her death so overtly mm -hmm. that I just don't, I think that would be a dissatisfying final act. But like, even like there's this detail in the most recent episode, you caught the, the red light in the, the camera filming uh, Tanya having sex with that guy in the last scene. Did you catch that? No. Okay, so if you look at the frame, um, when they first enter Quentin's bedroom, and the guy, I don't know his name, although he's hes very, very attractive. Nicola. Okay, uh, there's a shot where Nicolo is caressing Tanya's cheek. And yes. if you look in the background, there is a red light above them. And it is very clearly a camera. It is filming them. Who saw that? I saw that. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, that is going I'm to be used. that I missed it. Okay, well, that is going to be used as collateral in the, because, you know, I believe that, I don't know a ton about prenups, but I feel like there's something built in around the cheating of it all, especially when An you get it on camera. Clause, yeah. Infidelity clause. They got it on camera. So to me, that was their way of 
just sealing the deal. So to me, it's like they don't even need to murder Tanya because they can get the money without murdering her through what transpired at this very fun party, might I add. Um, so I, I just think that there's enough details interspersed throughout to to say that Tanya will not die, not to mention that speech from Quentin about like, I would die for beauty. Again, it's just, it's so heavy handed. And I think that that's for a reason, but I don't think it's the obvious reason. Yeah. Okay. Yes. You've raised very good points. I had no idea about the camera. Very curious to see how that pans out because I think it's a lot more plausible. And that's what I was saying earlier where I thought that the entire sort of mystery plot of this broad, broad conspiracy involving Quentin and Greg and Tanya just was a little unexpected given what we know about I'm seeing the camera. Sorry, I'm, I'm showing a visual notes podcast <laughs> as an audio medium, but... <laughs> yeah, go on my Twitter if you want to see. I have it on there. Given the uh, given the way that season one played out, and that I was surprised that we introduced this this very very broad conspiracy with a lot of intricacies that you had to pick up on details of phone calls and details of you know comments made about uh, that Cameron made about these rich Italians who own these villas but have no money and like and all these this this trail of breadcrumbs that was left for us that that surprises me if the case is that it is a conspiracy to kill Tanya whether she dies or not just the fact that there would be a conspiracy to actually kill her seems too extreme for Mike White and the White Lotus and so I'm buying into this. I'm buying into that that the conspiracy is not one so sinister as murder, but just blackmail or to break a prenup contract. Right, right. Now, can I ask another question that I'm seeing a lot of contention about on the internet? People seem really divided about um, Mia, the actress, uh, Beatrice uh, Rano, her, her voice, her vocal stylings. I'm like a big fan. I thought her cover of The Best Who Things in Life Who is complaining free. about this? There's a viral tweet right now going around. Well, they can get fucked, as far as I'm concerned. It's a friend of mine. Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, I mean, I'm not kidding, but they can get fucked. They can get fucked for that tweet. Um, yeah, no, I'm like, I'm, I think, like, I love her voice and all of its, and I mean this with no ounce of shade, like, the, the imperfections of her voice, I find, like, really lovely. Um, but I just, I just didn't know, like, is this... Are you so we're, we're we're on the same? I page. absolutely adore both of her performance, like the performance. Does she have three performances total? Yes, this was the third yeah. one in this episode. But I truly loved loved this one in particular of "You Belong to Me," uh, which is a song that I came to from the incredible classic film starring Julia Roberts, Mona Lisa Smile, where Tori Amos did a cover of You Belong to Me. And that is how I know the song. <laughs> Wait, we have to do a Patreon episode of Mona Lisa Smile because I am aligned with you. It is some of Julia Roberts' best work. Yeah, of course. And so so I know this song really well, but, but specifically because of Tori Amos on the Mona Lisa Smile soundtrack. And I thought it was so great. Like, it was such a good choice of song because if you know the song, the song is about people sort of like leaving their... It's about a person whose partner is leaving their regular life to go see all this beauty that the world has to offer. Like, you know, all the seven wonders and these incredible things that they are going to go do. 
but it almost acts as a warning and in the context of the white lotus almost a sinister warning of but don't forget you belong to me Mm. when the dream appears you better remember you belong to me which so nicely highlights and underlines you know some of the relationships going on and, and what's going on with harper and ethan and what's going on with cameron and daphne and what's going on between them but also what's going on with say alessio and lucia like you could really apply it to every individual and uh valentina and isabella like you can really apply it to everybody and i just think genius song choice and a great performance a great performance. And I really feel like Mia has been the character that we've witnessed the greatest transformation with over yeah. these six episodes. And I think what's so notable, and I think this is obviously done with great intention, but you know, she has this interest in Giuseppe at the very beginning of the series, which is strictly based around the fact that he has knowledge of this world that she wants access to. And what she learned in this episode and was able to act upon was that she doesn't need the knowledge she needs someone like Valentina who can usurp the knowledge and give her what the ultimate ultimate which is just the access like you don't need to know you don't need the training or any of that I mean like that's helpful but you don't need that you need someone to give you a chance and Valentina is in this position in which she can grant her the chance so it's almost like you see this arc with um with the character of Mia in in originally approaching Valentina with the intention of just giving her this opportunity to sing. And in this episode, she really feel, it felt like she understood that it's more than just this single opportunity. It's that someone like Valentina can teach her or can show her that she doesn't need someone like a Giuseppe. And I think not for nothing, the fact that it's a woman giving her this access instead of a man, I think is a uh, genius choice. Well, yeah, think back to what she said to Giuseppe when she said, why do men have all the power? And mm. his response was, so that pretty girls like you can get back to, can get to the front of the line. And it's like, here she is subverting that, turning it around, and instead using a woman who is in a position of power to get to the front of the line, which with all due respect, the front of the line is being a lounge singer at a hotel, like for rich people. So it's like, I, I, I really appreciate that about Mia, that it's like, I am so invested in the story of Mia's career and living her dreams. And then every now and then I have a moment where I'm like, oh, wait, the, so the, the step to that is being a lounge singer at a hotel, which is not unreasonable because this is a hotel for rich white people, many of whom are from Los Angeles. There's a potential she could be discovered in this location. It is, it is something beyond what she has now, which right. is very limited. And so I really appreciate that we've been brought into her dream and goals in this way that we feel invested, despite the fact that the stakes are so low in terms of what her dream actually is. And not just a lounge singer, but a lounge singer at a resort, um, which holds the distinction of having the same guest list each night. So if you're like a lounge singer- And the same menu. And the the same menu. Hello. You want the Branzino? (laughs) Um, And so I think it's interesting that it's like, she not only sort of has this uh, very simple uh, goal in life, but it's one that's like not even going to give her a lot of variety. Um, But it's the opportunity to like, test out her singing and despite viral tweets i mean i love her voice i i look forward to it i'm hopeful that we will get the season two soundtrack there's a playlist right now on spotify featuring the music the um incidental music no not the incidental music no we have the incidental music from season one season two is just the featured music and i'm Hmm. hopeful that we will get spotify versions of this because we need it yeah 
just solely so that I can propel Mia to the top of the charts. Yes. Yes. Who I believe is a real person at this point. No, I mean, this. it's giving like, this is what Vox Lux wanted to be. That is Mia. <laughs> yeah, Sia found dead in a ditch. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> and also, wait, not for nothing too, it's like, it's funny, it's like, here we are spending 10 minutes talking about Mia and this is this character, which I do want to say, I do take issue with Mia and Lucia not being featured on the poster for for season two because they are just as much cast members as all of the Americans. And obviously they appear in the opening credits, their names are listed, but I believe that they deserve their faces on the poster for season two. But what I was going to say, I love the fact that these characters that I thought were going to be basically just accessories to Dominic's plot um, have grown in to like ingratiate themselves with multiple characters throughout the show and just like dominate and not for nothing, both of these performances. It's funny. I mean, we, how do we even have a conversation about award season with this many performances? I feel like uh, Sabrina Impacciatore, who plays Valentina, her lips alone, the quiver of her lips deserves the Emmy nomination, right? Like separate from her performance. So I just think these Italian actors, I think they, I'm, I'm really hopeful that this is the beginning. I mean, obviously I know they've had great careers in Italy. Excuse, yeah, in Italy, but I, I am hopeful for more. It's like, I don't know. I want more, 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 more. I'm so glad that these plots were so developed. Yeah, it's so interesting because I was talking to you about this offline that the White Lotus, if we bring this back to Survivor, is really a story about David versus Goliath. The season that Mike White played on, season 37, it's an iconic season. If you're coming to this to hear White Lotus takes and you're not a Survivor fan and you want to start somewhere, start with Mike White's season, season 37. Well, don't, I mean, or you can start with Pearl Islands, which is going on Netflix, but like Mike White is on season 37 of Survivor. So you can go watch that. And it's an incredible season. And, and by the way, just quick, quick side note. Megan Fahey was just on Las Culturistas and revealed the fact that both she and Adam DeMarco watched season 37, David versus Goliath, when they first arrived in Sicily and appeared on the current season. I mean, I'm obsessed with the fact that Mike White is forcing all of Hollywood to watch this random modern season of Survivor. It's not random. I mean, it's a great season, but it is It's a season 37 of Survivor, which is 43 seasons in. So I do love that about Mike White. He deserves something for that. But I'll say that I think that the conceit of David versus Goliath as a Survivor season was to pit two tribes of people against one another. Uh, they were cast thematically. So there was a tribe of David, Davids who sort of like have worked hard their whole life, are still within a certain station in life, um, haven't seen a lot of huge economic, financial success, accolades, etc. And then you have the Goliaths who may have also worked hard, may have not, and uh, are at a higher station in life where they have achieved success and accolades, are owners of companies, et cetera, et cetera. And Mike White was on the Goliath tribe. And it really worked. Often these themes on Survivor don't work, but in that season it did work. And you look at this, and I'm not saying that Mike White did this purposefully because this is a theme in a lot of media, but in The White Lotus, both in season one and season two, you really have this struggle between Davids and Goliaths where you have, particularly in season one, kind of the hotel and grounds staff who are just 
constantly moving through life trying to advance their status in life incrementally. And I think a great example of that is uh, the woman from the spa whose character name I forget. Belinda. Uh, But she is interacting with this Goliath, who would be Jennifer Coolidge, who has come into a lot of money in her life, and is trying to work with this woman who she seems to genuinely like and want to help as part of her job, but she sees her as a conduit to being able to realize some of her own dreams, start her own company, where she can start working her way up that ladder as well. The thing is, in season one, it really doesn't work out for anybody. Yeah, she got a lot of cash, but she didn't get what she was ultimately looking for. And so when I come into season two, you sort of come in with the expectation that this is going to happen again. And I don't, I I think we're going to find out, is this Mike White's worldview that he's trying to share with us through the White Lotus that the world is the way it is with these Davids and Goliaths and Truly, if a David wants to get ahead in the world, they're going to have to overcome insurmountable odds, and the likelihood of that happening is nil. Uh, Or are we going to see, in this case, a David or some Davids get ahead? Is a David going to win this season of The White Lotus? And if that's the case, I think it's got to be Mia or Lucia. Right, and the question that is perhaps being asked here too is like can the david get ahead with without you like can the david usurp the goliath without defeating the goliath or do they have to defeat the Goliath? right that's yeah that's what i'm getting at yes 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 yeah because we see mia is trying to get ahead by using her connections she has sort of been mentored by lucia on how she can use her body she can use her sex to like get quicker access to certain things and we see her doing that is that going to be enough or does she have to take further action like perhaps you're suggesting or does the action she take actually even involve sort of like her goals and where she's trying to get in life or is it uh, something else that that if she is the person oh no you're saying lucia would kill cameron yes for what not paying I think not paying, but also like she. Well, yeah, yes, for not. But that would be the, that would be the original reason because right now it it's it's leading us to believe that however she's going to get the money is going to be something around Albie or Dominic because we also mm-hmm. know the fact that Dominic's family comes from a lot of money as well, mm-hmm. um, and Albie's very much entrenched in the plot right now. Or the other question is, it's like we keep seeing this like effort for Albie to like assert his assert the fact that he is a good person an air quotes good person and it's like is it Albie that is going to murder Cameron on Lucia's behalf because also one other side note but I think relevant here is that this character of Alessio who has been this like menacing force in the last few episodes is introduced in the first episode when Mia and Lucia walk right by him without any distress whatsoever so we have, and again, everything is inserted for a reason. And that makes me think, not makes me think, I think it's quite obvious to many people that uh, Lucia is in fact working with Alessio and mm-hmm. not as it's been presented. So the question is, it's like, do, does Lucia hire or ask Alessio to kill Cameron so that he can get her money 
but that or their money rather but then like does albie intercede in some way in an effort to like of an effort of nobility or not necessarily kill does alessio come in to scare cameron into paying up and then albie sort of gets tied up in the ruse there we go yeah as we saw the whole family dom burton albie sort of like getting involved in this I think, act of Alessio following them to their hometown or Bert's hometown or Bert's mother's hometown, rather, and and putting on what I think was a show uh, that, that further develops this narrative in Albie's mind about Lucia being oppressed by Alessio and, uh, and, and certainly could go somewhere where that gets misinterpreted or an act gets misinterpreted by Albie uh, with unintended consequences. Right. Because I do feel like Lucia actually does care for Albie to some extent. I mean, I think she's probably done this before, but um, I, I also see like actual true tender moments between them. And I think a great example of that is that night shot at the beach where the moon is on them. And it's like after the whole day's events. And it's like, I feel like, watching Lucia I'm seeing this sort of internal struggle where she's having to be like because the fact that she tells Albie that he doesn't have to pay certainly on the second night I think it's genuine I think she I I don't think that it's like Alessio's going to come after you eventually I do feel some genuine connection between Lucia and Albie am I crazy you're not crazy although I think that that's like sort of I think that's potentially a mislead in thinking that it's genuine because also like where is Lucia going to sleep if not in Albie's room? I mean, obviously I know she lives nearby, but she's trying to live this like fantasy week at the resort and she's no longer able to sleep in Dominic's room. Um, And obviously the night that she spent with Cameron was because the women were away. So I feel like there's a level of convenience there. There's a world in which, and again, Mike White is all about this gray area. There's a world in which like she enjoys Albie, but is not in love with him. Like it's fine. It's like good enough to get her by. And and yes, that she's genuine and not wanting payment. Um, But I'm not sure how genuine her feelings are. But I obviously think that like Mike wants, Mike White wants us to be asking this very question that we're asking right now. Um, But I'm curious too, like if the, again, with the key card of it all and Mia's potential access, if that comes into play. I also think it was so notable that moment when, um, because it's it's both Dominic and Albie that get out of the car um, when Alessio pulls over and they're kind of, which is I think such a great moment where it's like, this father and son linking up because there's this genuineness in both of them, which is that like, they don't want harm to fall upon this young woman. And it's like, she is the thing that binds them (laughs) in more ways than one in a very murky situation. But I think it's notable that when the car does pull away, it's Bert who gets out of the car and has this moment where he like calls out to her. Um, I forget what he says exactly. Something like, no, come back or something. And I just think like that, the inclusion of that beat, like he didn't get out of the car when it was necessary for him to get out of the car, but rather waited to get out until she was already gone. But but like that was a, a strange moment. And speaking of strange moments, do you think we're going to get a resolve around Daphne's trainer? I don't think we will. I would be surprised if we did. It doesn't feel like the moment that needs to be resolved. 
Like, I think we got it. I think we got the point. Unless it's truly going to come to blows between Daphne and Cameron and she exposes this thing. I just think she's too smart to expose it. Unless you're saying, suggesting that Harper exposes it. No, I'm not. But I think, well, first of all, I was so surprised by like how many people thought that they had like made some grand discovery online the next day when it was like, hmm, I think that maybe like those kids are the trainers. And it's like, yeah. Yep, yeah, I, I think that too. I think Mike White thinks that too and wants us to think that too as well. Anyway, um, but I am curious, like, yeah, where... So knowing that that was inserted, <clears throat> like, to what end? Or does that just go unresolved? Is that a detail that's meant to sort of just for, give us further insight into this marriage? And I think, like, the question that, like, I mean, there's many, you know, many people are speculating on, like, what is the thesis of The White Lotus season two? And I think we've gotten several, you know, lines that really summate it. But, like, one of those for me is this idea of, like, do like, is there a world in which, like, Cameron and Daphne have a good and loving marriage? Like, that they recognize each other's needs and where they can fulfill them and where they can't, and that they ultimately make it work. I mean, I remember it's like that line from episode four where Daphne says, I am not a victim. I know what he does. And I, you know, get, you know, the Christina Aguilera track 15 on strips, get mine, get yours. I mean, that's a Daphne anthem. (laughs) And so I'm just wondering, it's like, is there a world in which it's like, this is actually like the Mike White's intention with these characters is to say that like, these might look like the snobs. I mean, I remember the famous viral moment from episode one with Ted Lasso and did you vote? I think I voted. But it's like, is there a world in which it's like this? This is a good marriage, or or yeah, or like you know, what's that little squiggle thing that you put um, next to words sometimes? But it's like sort of like air quotes. I don't know that. I don't know the name of it. Yeah, whatever that that squiggle is. It's like, is this the squiggle good marriage? Mm. Yeah. Well, I think what it is is it's telling us that straight, open relationships can work. Mm. And they don't have to necessarily be called an open relationship, but it's this unspoken understanding between the parties that you do your thing, I'll do my thing. We come home to each other at the end of the night and we're happy. And it's like, A, who is having that conversation? But also how incredible that it's Mike White, this bisexual showrunner, to instigate that conversation. Um, Also, it's called a tilde, because I know that there are listeners out there that are screaming that out loud and hoping that we address it here. It is a tilde. So did they have a tilde? Tilde Swinton for White Lotus season three. (laughs) Not no. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think that is very much something that is worth pondering and I've not seen, I mean, obviously it's like, you know, you have like shows like Big Love that explore polyamory, but like, I feel like it's cool to see a show like this explore a topic like that and not have it be the A plot. Yeah. Can we talk about Harper and Ethan? Because honestly, this is the heart of all of season two for me. And I know there's so much focus on what is going on with Tanya and what is going on with Portia and Quentin and this entire sort of conspiracy that's going on with them. But for me, like, I just think that particularly Aubrey Plaza's performance in this is truly 12 out of 10. I think she is incredible. And I think the way that we have seen this relationship play out over the course of the season is the best thing that we're going to come away from White Lotus season two with. Yes, I, I 
completely agree with you, especially too, because I think Aubrey Plaza is the actor that people were like, not most familiar with, but like, I think she was like the big get of the season. And I think people have this expectation of who Aubrey Plaza is as an actor, whether it be from Parks and Rec or from um, Ingrid Goes West, but like she's always played, I feel, iterations of a similar kind of character. And this is just so something we've never seen from her before. And it was good from the get-go. And then it like went places that like pushed past good. It's like, as you say, 12 out of 10. It's like, I think we started at a 10 out of 10. And it's just been this roller coaster ride of feeling like the emotions are never on her face. Like it's never, there's so many like obvious, like, like you'll hear Ethan say something and you'll be like, oh, if someone said that to me, I would react this way. And that's never what happens with Harper. And you never quite know what's going on in her head. And, but, but you're, you're very much aware that there's like this vortex happening. I do want to recommend people check out, Aubrey was on the most recent episode of Still Watching, which is Vanity Fair's podcast, which is recapping The White Lotus. And I think it's a particularly notable interview with Aubrey because when you see a lot of her television appearances, Aubrey's often like playing a version a of character. herself. Yeah. yeah. Um, not dissimilar to Jennifer Coolidge, I should say, um, where it's like Aubrey is fulfilling people's expectations of who she thinks they are. And I thought this was like a rare interview in which it's like she was being, I don't want to say herself because I don't know her, but was being a, a was speaking in a way that didn't feel as performative as I often see her. And I really just enjoyed hearing her thoughts on the show. And I think there's something so fun about hearing an actor that's playing a character as developed as Harper be able to speak about it as the actor who has their, or no, rather, excuse me, not as the actor, as the human being who has feelings about the character mm -hmm. that are not necessarily in line with the character. But like, you know, it's like, I feel like there's a protectiveness. You could, you could feel the fact that like Aubrey Plaza loves Harper. Um, and I, I think that that's not always the case with actors or actors just aren't necessarily always like attuned to, you know, that dimensionality that she is. So highly recommend that interview. And uh, I am hopeful that I will be speaking to Aubrey Plaza sooner rather than later. I think that Harper is just so interesting to watch over the course of the season because obviously this couple starts out so at least Harper in the in the relationship starts out with this superiority complex over their friends or rather Ethan's friend from school uh, who she is now being forced to be friends with she feels and everything that she's saying is is relatable she's saying these people are dumb they don't even vote like we have a good relationship we tell each other things we're honest with each other and that does seem to be the case and yet we find out finally you know over i mean obviously over the course of uh, she and daphne going to noto and then this party happening with lucia and mia in ethan's room and, and all of those things that happen over the course of the show do open harper's eyes to the fact that uh, to the fact that her relationship isn't what she thought it was. But in this episode in particular, it gets even deeper than that to the point where she's like, it's not just that you lied to me in this moment, despite me giving you all these chances to come clean. And it, it almost doesn't even matter whether you had sex with Mia or Lucia at all. 
uh, the fact is like you lied about the situation and 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 so it's about a, it's a trust issue yeah and so then in this episode it goes beyond that where she says so it's not about that it's about the fact that actually we are not sexually attracted to one another anymore. Well, and it's so interesting how she plays this or like how the dialogue is written, whichever way it went, that he's responding and he's really like trying to combat this idea that he had sex with one of Mia or Lucia. And she's having, she's beyond that conversation. She's really like, that doesn't matter. What matters is that we're not interested in each other anymore. And she kind of walks that back and says, well, you're not interested in me. But I think she hasn't yet accepted the fact that it goes both ways, I feel. Totally. And I, th- I think that's such an interesting point. And I think I love the fact that the line that they included in the trailer is we're not attracted to each other. And then in the episode itself, there's like another layer peeled back, which is her saying, which, as you say, we don't know if... So this is how deep this show is. It's like, we don't know if she's saying that to sort of walk back the statement um, or she's walking it back because she's finally admitting a truth that she's always known but never spoken or Mm -hmm. is she admitting a truth that she did not yet know? Because you know how sometimes you say something and you're just like, Mm -hmm. you didn't even know that you felt the way you felt and then it comes out of your mouth and then you have the realization where it's like, wow, that wasn't a Freudian, or, or no, sorry, that was a Freudian slip and like there is a there there. And I think that we don't know because the performance is such where it could really go so many ways. But what the because what we get the impression that in those early episodes that Harper's reluctance to have sex is feeling like he's not attracted to her, and so that is what makes her pull back. But then she realizes she walks in on him masturbating and is like, "Oh, he does have a sex drive." Because I think at that point she might have been like not making herself out to be the problem, but it's Ethan. Then Ethan presents the fact that, no, it's you. And then she's like, okay, well, let me readjust. I'll, you want sex, I'll be sex. And then she realizes, okay, she tried to be sex and that didn't work. And so I think in Harper's mind, and then when you, you know, introduce this plot in episode three, where it's like, okay, sex has come into like, his, you know, first it was the masturbation and the porn, which by the way, I love the detail of how Will Sharp, who plays Ethan, closes the laptop right as there's like that last moan from the porn that's let out. It's just so good. Um, and I think she's sort of contending with not understanding how to make this relationship work and if she wants to make this relationship work. And I think that that duality is so effective because there is a world in which they get this relationship back on track. It's so interesting because it started, like I said, with this superiority complex that she thought this other couple, not only are they dumb in her estimation, but they're also phony. Everything they're doing is a front. And she was on a mission to prove that. And when she came back from Noto, she was like, had a victory. She was like, guess what? I was right. It's all fake. And it turns out now she's realizing that even she was faking this perfect relationship because she believed she had a perfect relationship. And the way that she demonstrated she had a perfect relationship was by putting herself in opposition to other people and proving that she and they as a couple were better than. And here here she is admitting that's all a front. This was fake. And that's so interesting to see. It's just like, I feel like the way that Harper's worldview has crumbled around her both intentionally and unintentionally is so fascinating to watch and it's been done so 
with such craft and like and and so carefully that right. it's just honestly so great to watch. And there's that paradigm shift for Harper when she goes to Daphne and says, "I think something happened with the boys when we were in Noto," and the fact that Daphne doesn't care affects how Harper moves forward because she does care, but then she's like, but but here's this woman who's constantly, I mean, there's this scene at the beach in this episode where it's like Cameron and Daphne are constantly laughing and enjoying one another's company. And just there's this this sexual energy between them, but it's not just a sexual energy. It's a, they just seem to like to be around one another. And I think in Harper's mind, she's starting to say, well, it's like, okay, well, I'm doing everything in my, in her mind, she came to this island thinking like, we're good, they're they're the problem. And then here she is being like, well, wait a minute, is the problem, in fact, the solution? Like, it's just so fascinating watching her try to unpack this judgment. And I think there's a great detail that happens a few episodes ago when, you know, Harper has this comment where she makes Ethan where she's like, you know, they're probably talking about us in the other room. And I love the fact that they are, in fact, talking about her, but for one sentence and then they move on. And I think that that is so, like, that is, there's so much there because it's like, Harper is right. Like, Mike White as a writer is affirming the character of Harper. She's not crazy. And she is crazy because she's thinking that it's like a big plot line for them when it's just a moment in time and then they move on to other shit. I love that detail. I also think Harper is just such a self-saboteur. And that's what puts me on edge. When I say I've been on edge, and particularly in episode five, I was on edge. It's because Harper is self-sabotaging. And maybe I see myself in her and some of the ways that I've dealt with things. But it's just like, she (laughs) let's not. She sees a problem and she decides to make her next move as if she's playing a board game, as if she's playing Survivor. Mm. And she's like, I'm going to do it, not intentionally fuck with this person, but I'm going to do my own thing that's so passive aggressive that it's actually going to create a new problem. And you know what? I'm happy it created that problem. And you know what? I'm going to make another problem out of this. And then I'm going to get mad at that problem. So that the thing that she is upset about is so far removed from where the argument or problem started that it's in a way unintentionally or subconsciously perhaps destroying the relationship like from within where she's deciding actually we're not going to talk about this issue that now like I might feel like this wasn't a problem or you didn't have sex with this prostitute but I've got this other issue where it's like Actually, there's a fundamental problem with our relationship. And I feel like if she just stepped back and went, okay, you know what? Like, let's deal with this. Let's have a conversation about this. Let's talk about what we're going to do moving forward to fix it. Instead of that, she escalates it to the next thing Mm -hmm. and escalates it to the next thing to the point where I feel like she thinks she's winning, quote unquote, the argument. And yet what she's doing is pushing Ethan so far away that the relationship may not have a future. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we definitely saw, I mean, this was really the episode in which Ethan began to unravel, because I think up until this point, and particularly in those first few episodes, we very much got, like, whereas, like, Albie was, like, overly positioned as the good guy, 
Ethan was in fact the good guy. Like he was sort of like, you know, you had this mega bro in the character of Cameron and Ethan seemed to signify, no, you can be in this, this world of tech millionaires, billionaires, what have you, and maintain a sense of integrity. And what's funny is it's like, I think Ethan is just at this huge crossroads and then combined with what's happening and the anxiety of his relationship, it's all sort of coming to a head. And I think that's such a great detail about the character of Ethan to bear in mind as you watch this is it's like, Ethan has had this major life shift coming into this trip that informs so much of his relationship with Cameron, you know, when you, and then in addition to that, everything that's like new for him, there's the resentment that has built in him uh, with Cameron through their time together in college that's also coming to a head. So it's like not only his shit with Daphne, but there's like the stress of being in this new money and, and you know, no doubt the workload that he's grappling with and then all the stuff with Cameron bubbling up and the idea that these two pressure points, Cameron and Daphne, the fact that they are both then coming together, I think that is what's, you know, sending him to his breaking point. My question is with regard to the the door between the rooms and, and I still think I'm going to have a hard time if... Cameron and Daphne were not fucking, and I don't believe that they were fucking. Why was the latch on the door done like that? Like, what was that? I think it was Harper's self-sabotage. I think she did it on purpose to fuck with Ethan. I think Mm. she saw that Ethan had this insecurity. She knew he had this insecurity because of what he said about mimetic desire while they were on their wine tasting tour. And she knows she's already planted sort of that seed about how uh, Cameron had gotten undressed in front of her in episode one and so she was like look i'm gonna she thinks she's taking daphne's advice by being like i'm gonna do what i have to do i don't think she understood daphne's advice which wasn't necessarily like make him feel like shit the the answer wasn't make him feel the way you feel it was make yourself feel better about the situation i think she misunderstood that Mm -hmm. advice and what she's doing is trying to make ethan feel like shit and so i think she knew exactly what she was doing i think she set. i think she staged the room in that way to play Mm -hmm. mental games with ethan i have to say i was proud of harper for confronting ethan at the brunch right after she saw him talking to the hookers because i was worried that that was gonna like add on to her like list of like you know the complex feelings around whatever's going on and i was like okay i i'm proud of you harper for seeing this thing and like addressing it immediately and not letting it fester now because you did mention um that you know big moment in episode one where we saw theo james's cock exposed as he came up to to change the bathing suits Were you surprised at all? You know, we finally got this admission, what, like five weeks later that that was in fact a prosthetic, which a lot of people were really surprised by. Were you surprised? Did that surprise you to learn that it was a prosthetic? Or were you in the camp that I was in, which was like, it was so obviously a prosthetic, I'm surprised that people are surprised. It was a huge donkey cock. Obviously, it was a prosthetic. Like, it's a joke. It's an absolute joke. And then it's interesting then in this episode that we see Niccolo not wearing a prosthetic, I believe, or if it is a prosthetic, it's much more realistic. Uh, and so it's just like, I, it was. Yeah. I don't get the choice. I know you could write a thesis on this uh, and I'll, I'll let you say what you need to say, but I don't need to see prosthetics. If somebody's not comfortable 
doing full frontal, then just don't show it. There was no need to show it. Uh, it. We didn't really get anything out of it. We would have gotten the idea that he was nude if we just saw his butt cheeks, uh, which we did. I don't think we needed to see a huge dick in between his legs. Yeah. This reminds me of one of the episodes from And Just Like That, in which you had Harry's prosthetic dick and then Carrie walking in on her neighbor downstairs who had a trick over and we saw his real dick. So it's sort of like these shows that like want to have it both ways. And it's always when it comes and to pati- like- particularly because Quentin says about Niccolo, I've got this like the most hung stud in yeah. Sicily, like coming over. And he it's like- must be a grower. It's it's a normal dick. Yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, we saw Cameron with- This trunk. <laughs> and and this is the thing that's so confusing about it. If you follow this, uh, the, the news cycle around this dick, which I do- Whereas, like, Theo James has been presenting it in a way where it's, like, saying that they wanted it to be a normal-sized dick. And, like, the prosthetic is not. Like, I you would think it's, like, you use a prosthetic because the actor or production does not want to have the regular dick. And so the prosthetic is just meant to be in place of the dick. But in this instance, it's, like, they have this tree trunk, but it in no way factors in like you would think it would be like something where it's like harper is fixated because she like saw this giant cock and is lusting for it but like that's not the case i'm just i don't understand the choice to have it be this massive dick because this adds to this like i don't want to call it a problem i don't think it's like a you know there we've got bigger problems you know on our hands here but i do think like this this usage of prosthetics is notable because of the fact that we're constantly showing prosthetics to be giant dicks. And because we get so little full frontal representation of male nudity in general, and then what we do get is often prosthetics, and what these prosthetics often are are larger versions of penises, I do think that impacts the way that people, and notably men, think about their bodies. And yeah, I don't want to like tangent too much down this, you know alleyway um but i am very i i would love to know more it's like if we get the chance to talk with mike white i would love to know it is very much an hbo thing like hbo loves Mm -hmm. the prosthetic but i would be curious to know especially with as you said like we did get a real dick in this episode why the prosthesis and why did he have to be so hung and why did it have to be there like, it didn't matter. And it didn't like, matter to the scene. Yeah, and then Theo James, well, maybe it will matter, but Theo James had this, um, he was he did an interview several weeks ago in which he said that there was a version of the scene filmed that was far more explicit, but knowing what we know now, that probably would have just been, because what we see is we see the dick from behind, um, mm-hmm. and I have to imagine that that version of it would have been him facing forward or her, right. you know, seeing the, but again, it would have been a prosthesis, so... When, when we're saying it would have gone too far, I'm assuming he means like narratively it would have just been too obvious because that scene is meant to sort of be like the question that arose afterwards is like, was it done with intention? Which, I mean, obviously it was, but like, you know, there was that question of like, you know, and I feel like had yeah. he been facing, it would have been very different. But yeah. um, but I will say, I one of the many great things about Mike White, we've just gotten so much male nudity this season, um, which has just been so welcome. I mean, between Jack 
and Albi and this new Giovanni now. And uh, obviously with, we got uh, Will Sharp, Ethan's behind uh, in episode two. We've gotten Theo James's butt and his prosthesis. I'm grateful that we, this is just such a show that there's this clear love of the male body that Mike yeah. White has and by proxy so many of us viewers and I'm grateful for it. So much of which is nodded to in the, the establishing shots and the art shots. Uh, there was a great, great one from the Palazzo this week, I thought of, like, I mean, it was like focused on the male body, uh, which I just love. I feel like all of the establishing you shots. You love the male body. I love the male body. I love the establishing shots, like all all of the transitional music. Oh I think just like God. really cr- creates a universe. How about that moment? I think it was episode four or five. You know, it was episode five, and it was the transition over to the winery from the water, and the water became the red wine in the glass. Do you know what I'm talking mm. about? Oh my yeah. God! Like yeah. there have been. I mean, obviously, Mike White. There were fabulous transitions in season one. There's been fabulous transitions on a lot of his work, to be honest. But like, I do feel like they've like really. There's this care put into this show in so many ways. It's like, the I mean, we could do a whole fucking podcast series on the costumes. We could do an episode devoted to Aubrey Plaza's costumes. Oh my God, costumes. the costumes. Can I just say something? Because there's nowhere else to say this. Do it. I thought the best choice. And like, I'm not a fashion guy. I like, I don't really like recognize a lot of stuff, whatever. But I can recognize a good choice. And the scene where Alessio is fighting with Lucia... Uh, where they're stopped at the cars as they're headed to Bert's mother's hometown. And you get this shot from inside the car of Lucia arguing with Alessio. And she has this strap on bag that is a boy London bag, which I think is a now defunct brand that was very trendy in like 2011, 2010. And I just thought the choice of like finding that bag and giving it to Lucia tells you so much about the character of Lucia, who is so interested in fashion. Like they went to the store, right, where they were looking for and shopping for things they otherwise couldn't afford had it not been for this lucrative week that Mm -hmm. they started at the White Lotus. And and here she is sort of like in her streetwear with this boy London bag I thought was so interesting and like so notable. Totally. Another great fashion moment from the series is Dominic's glasses. I just feel like the shape of those glasses is like, I'm going to say quintessential Dominic because that's how I feel about it. It's just like there's, I see those glasses, I'm like, and also Aubrey Plaza's glasses, the shape of those glasses. Yeah. It's like, I can, there's just so, and, and again, um, I'm thinking about so many of Daphne's outfits and that Prada outfit when they went to Noto. Um, it's just, yeah, it's, so it's the music, it's the costumes. It's obviously this beautiful place that they filmed at it's these these shots of the water i mean I, there was the moment in this episode towards the very end when we went back to the gay house party when the water was like cresting onto the shore and it was like really bubbling up and like in that moment i was like my heart sank because i was like something's about to happen mm-hmm. and i could just i was like and it's i there was something about the way the water hit where it's like i knew to like you know, prepare myself. There's also this funny thing. I love the structure of these episodes, how we do half the episode in the daytime, half the episode at night, because there's always that shot of the sunset. And in this episode, we had it where we were back at the gay, I was just, I was saying house party, I should say the palazzo party, really. Um, and when those, those, uh, what do you call them? Where like the, those fire, the fire coming out of the, what, do you know what I'm talking about? 
No. It's like where all the, the fire was coming out of all of those different like urns outside almost. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, I'm sure they Okay, made. well, yeah. Whatever that part. shot was, I just was like, I love it's like suddenly you know it's nighttime and like nothing good happens at yeah. night on the White Lotus. So it's like you kind of know as an audience member that like, okay, we're transitioning to the anxiety. So like, are yeah. you ready? Yeah, in that way, it really harkens back to Twin Peaks for me, which uh, which very specifically in its first two seasons, every single episode was one day, right? And you had the daytime activity, which felt very innocent. It felt very goofy. You know, you had Dale Cooper, like, you know, th- th- throwing rocks at bottles and, and like using all these unconventional methods. But specifically when it turned to nighttime, it became dark. It became sinister. The owls come out at night, like... It, visions happened at night it was like very very that and i feel like the white lotus in that it takes each episode as a day and it sort of has this similar structure where we're getting like i I mean like i think it's generally just a little bit more heavy especially in the daytime like there is more heavy uh, activity but i do feel like you get similar sort of beats yeah now i did want to talk a little bit about bert and Dominic and Albie, yeah. um, particularly the trip in this episode. I wanted to talk about it like independent of Lucia because I feel like Bert has had this really interesting, it's almost been like a very C plot because we have so many A's and I don't even know if we really have B plots on this show. It's like a series of A's, but then you, like I thought Mia was going to be like an ancillary character, but then like she really, you know, has, as we said, really developed into her many storylines. But anyway, Bert to me sort of remains very much in the background, but I think notably so. And and what he does have, he really works with. And there's this detail in the beginning of the episode um, when uh, Dom is telling, telling the family that, you know, he had a friend that went on a similar journey and reconnected with his family. And, oh, it's going to be so amazing. And Bert says, a real homecoming, that would be nice cut to the end of the episode when the, when we're sitting at the dinner and Bert has his line where he said, well, there is no homecoming, not for me, not anymore, which really feels like a finale moment mm-hmm. for Bert as a character, which is all the more reason why I think something's going to happen with him in episode seven. But what are you feeling about Bert and, and what are you feeling about Mike White's intentions with the character of Bert? I really, really like Bert. And I feel like almost... I almost feel like Bert is paralleling Harper in a certain way in that he came into this feeling like his life or or, or having the understanding or at least the front that his life was one way and that it was quite a successful life. He's obviously done well for himself. He had on paper a successful marriage, a family, all of these things. And he talks about that and he tells people about it and he tells people he's proud of his roots and that he's Sicilian. And we know watching it that, you know, it's like a classic, I'm Sicilian. And it's like, well, you don't speak the language. You don't really, you've never been to the place. Uh, and and so it's like, how Sicilian are you? And that's like the first clue that he's not necessarily who he's always told himself he was or presented to the world. And then as we move forward, it's like he's faced with these hard truths where Dom tells him, like, we all heard mom crying at night. Like whatever this front is you're trying to, or this story that you've created around your marriage, this narrative that you have lived your life by, it's not true. And we know that it's not true. And I think Bert knows it's not true as well. And it really culminates in this trip to uh, the mother's hometown. I forget what it's called. Um, Alessa de Aqua or something like that. Um, but Sounds right. 
in finding like even when they first arrive at the town and they're kind of like this is it like no wonder everybody left and then when they go to this family house which is one of those like goofy funny scenes but ultimately like it's sad that they have found these people who are potential probable relatives and they want nothing to do with them Uh, they are so distant from each other not just in terms of their familial relationship but in terms of their culture and like worldview and understanding of the world that Bert feels he can just show up and he's going to be welcomed with open arms and he's really slapped in the face that like these people have a life and it is so different from mine and this is the real quote-unquote real Sicily and I don't know this world mm-hmm. the, the the Sicily that I have imagined in my life and that I've imagined this moment has turned out so different that it's so sad I feel like when he cries at the table about so it and, and says these things about like you know you think that a woman's going to hug you and all and, or embrace you you're going to ha- have the embrace of a woman or whatever it is he says um, that he's kind of like having this moment of realization that I feel like is a culmination of the the quote unquote homecoming not coming to fruition but also being faced with these hard truths about the marriage that he had the way that his wife felt about him the way that his son feels about him the the way that his son has emulated the negative aspects of his relationship with his relationship with Laura Dern it's character over the phone um, I just feel like it's a really tragic character and I think that you, like you, you look at these moments where he fell, right? When he fell in episode one, and he got up and he was like, "I'm completely fine." And then, as far as we know, he also fell and hit his head. We didn't see that happen, but I think we can assume he fell and hit his head. And he's like, "I'm fine." And it feels like it's starting to catch up to him, where he very well could be one of the uh, quote unquote other bodies uh, that has been discovered, and it may just be like. He has reached the end of his rope here and and he's either going to have another fall or like he actually was concussed and it's going to turn out badly or something like that. But I just feel like he's such a tragic character and such an interesting one because I don't think like we often get, especially in these prestige TV shows that are uh, appealing to a certain sort of like younger demographic. I don't think we really get older people like Bert explored with this kind of complexity and nuance. Mm hmm. I've been going on a long time. How do you feel about Bert? No, I mean, I, I think you went on for a long time for important reason. I, I think that, <laughs> no, I really do. I think you make a lot of really good points. I feel like it was so Bert to show up at that house with no doubt that this is his family. So it wasn't presented yeah. like, hey, we're DeGrasso's, you're DeGrasso's, perhaps we're related. It was, we are related, which I just think speaks so much to a certain kind of male ego, which is that like this ability to move through the world with such self-assurance that is just so, again, specifically the male ego, not all male egos, but a certain kind of, of male ego. And I think there's something around, I'm, I was always struck during that Dominic monologue from several episodes ago when he confronts Bert and he says, you never taught me about intimacy. And I don't think it was intimacy with women. I think it was the intimacy that is achieved amongst people who love one another. And I think it's notable that Bert says in this episode, a woman's embrace, um, because we're introduced to Bert as like this big horn dog in the first episode, mm-hmm. who's, you know, trying to get with the staff and you know, always putting an eye out towards any female in in his gaze. Um, But what this said to me is like that sort of difference between the fact that 
this idea that it's like, for men like Bert, they either sexualize women or they are a wife. And, and that's a different kind of love and that there's no, that these things can't be bonded together. Um, a wife is who you respect. Uh, uh, and then there are the women you have sex with and then there are the women that you respect and that those two things cannot be one, which is, I think, something that Albie is finding his effort to have both he's finding it quite unsuccessful, right? He was trying to be the respectful guy that has sex with Portia, and Portia, as it turns out, just or thinks that she wants to have sex, just a, a little fling. Um, so I just find, like, Bert's journey really fascinating, and and particularly with these, with these two guys. And also, while I'm mentioning it, just to touch on Portia, Portia's the character I've had the hardest time with. Um, I feel like she's the one character that I kind of could do without, because... I don't really understand her journey so much because she was like in the beginning complaining so much about the fact that she'd been brought to this resort and all of a sudden Tanya wants her out of sight, which to I think many of us watching would be like, hey, that's a dream. I also don't really understand what Portia does for the character of Tanya, like as an assistant, because we saw that scene several episodes ago when the... um when the uh, fortune teller came in, in which Portia's being told, hey, you have to sit here while I sleep and read through a Vanity Fair. But then here we are a few episodes later and Tanya's fine with her, you know, going out and, you know, not even checking in whatsoever, which you could say, well, that's because Tanya's distracted by the gaze. And that very well could be, but like we were meant to be told that like, that she's this hellish boss and it's so, but again, it's like, well, perhaps she was a hellish boss and she's changing and loosening up as a result of these gays. Perhaps. I never got the impression that Tanya was an awful boss so much as just like a needy human being. Um, and again, it's like, she's on this all expenses paid trip to Sicily and was told to like get lost. I feel like, and I, and I always try and approach this in the perspective of like, Perhaps the thing that annoys you about the character is by design. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think anything is ever, especially in the world of Mike White, you know, it's like the fact that I'm picking up on this means it's probably being put down um, by him. But I still have trouble with Portia and like understanding her. And I did feel like with this episode, it was a bit like I knew exactly where we were going with Portia's journey from the moment that they had that initial conversation um, at the water. So then when we got the several other scenes of her starting to have her realization, I felt like we were like really ahead of her on that. I do want to give a shout out though to the shot that we got from behind them of Jack sitting on top of the bench because, you know, there's been a lot of discourse on Twitter about dump trucks, you know, who actually has one. And I do think uh, <laughs> Leo, the actor that plays Jack, I do qualify that as a dump truck. Well, I want to say something about that scene. Uh, yeah, obviously he's got a great ass. But what I did like about that scene, given everything that you just said about Portia, is that I feel like Jack really spoke for the audience in that moment because when he asked, well, what are you looking for in life? And she said to be satisfied. And he kind of went, like, what exactly do you want? We are living at the best possible time that we could live at. We are not living in the Middle Ages when people are just slaughtering each other. I mean, which is ironic given like that we know that a slaughtering of some sort is coming. But I mean, like what he did that in that moment was like, what are you like, are you dreaming of some long gone days past that actually you've just romanticized in your mind? Because like, you've got it pretty good here. 
And uh, this is coming from somebody we're going to find out has been at whatever, in whatever hole he's talking about, whatever like low point that he has had in his life. He's kind of being like, look, you're like a very privileged girl and you need to like snap, snap out of it because like you've got it pretty good here. Uh, So I did really like that because I have had similar problems with Portia where I'm like, you know, I think she complains a little too much, uh, given everything that she's got. Like, she is employed uh, for a very wealthy person. She probably does well by it. She is being brought to this resort. Yeah, Tanya tells her to stay in her room, but ultimately, it doesn't matter whether she does or not. Um, I, the only thing I would say about Tanya being okay with her going off with Jack, it's like, it has been confusing their relationship because she wanted her there for the tarot reading for no particular reason, right? So I think it's not that she's a hellish boss, but what we've seen is that she's an unpredictable boss and is needy in moments and then wants full independence in other moments. But the the thing that has been nice to see is the way that we've seen Tanya warm to Portia over the course of their week at the White Lotus, where she's even giving her advice. You know, she told the story about, you know, when I was a girl, I would be dressed up as a doll and you know you can be brought all these wonderful places but you'll still be lost and you just what she tells her is you need to get your shit together i don't think the like i don't know whether tanya is the right person to be giving life advice or to take life advice from but in that moment it did feel genuine that tanya felt she was bestowing some important wisdom upon portia because she cared for portia's mm-hmm. well-being now my question to the godfather shirt that we saw portia wearing when she woke up mm. uh, at the beginning of the episode so I'm assuming that that was not Jack's shirt. And if it's not Jack's shirt, I mean, that you would think that that's Albie's shirt, but her and Albie never slept together. Like, wh- what do you think that shirt was meant to, what were we supposed to make of that shirt? Yeah, but wasn't Albie not a fan of the Godfather? Okay, well then, but like, the I have a hard time believing Jack has a Godfather shirt lying around. And if he does, I feel like that's just like such a specific detail to insert and for what? True. That, that left a question mark for me. Because, remind me, Portia hadn't even seen The Godfather. Portia had not right? seen The Godfather. But, I mean, obviously... Well, the- maybe it's a, maybe it's more of a comment about Portia that, you know, she bought a, a, a vintage-style shirt at Urban Outfitters. Perhaps, but it's, it's oversized. For a movie she's never seen. It's like you get... you you it. I feel like it was purposely fitted in a way to make it seem like it was not her shirt. Hmm. But... You, you could be right. Um, what did you make of, at the start of the episode, obviously we have this this breakfast with Tanya and Portia, the one that you were just talking about. And I think for many viewers, you're watching it thinking, this is the moment where Tanya is going to, if not explicitly tell Portia what she saw last night, at least signal it in more of a way. And she didn't. Obviously she gave her the advice to get her shit together, which I think was you know, rooted in what she saw. And obviously we did see Tanya make that comment um, when Quentin entered being like, I had trouble sleeping last night. I heard things going bump in the night, but then we quickly sort of breeze over that. But, um, you know, I think it was the, I think Mike White wanted the response from us as the audience to be like, Tanya, tell Portia what you saw in, in you know, explicit terms. What do you think uh, Tanya was thinking in keeping that information from her? I think that this is a really complicated moment for Tanya because 
I think she wants to do Portia a favor by giving her advice that is not so specific as to say, this guy that you're into, like, I know we're on your second guy during the week here, but this guy you're into is not good news and you need to get away from him. I think she wants Portia to be able to make her own decision about that. And so I don't think she wants to like ruin it. But I also feel like there's a maybe a selfish motivation here because Tanya, despite seeing a whole lot of red flags, is still going along with the things at the Palazzo because she's having fun. Like she is fulfilling her own sort of shallow desires of getting complimented, getting positive reinforcement, being able to have a good time without her husband around or involved. Like she's living the single life. And I feel like selfishly, she wants to prolong that. She doesn't see any like immediate danger in doing so. For for all she knows, this is a fling Portia is having with somebody she's never going to see again. So it's like, does she really feel like I need to tell Portia that this guy she's having sex with is also having sex with who I understand is her or I'm supposed to believe is her uncle now? Maybe not so. Um, so I feel like she's just selfishly prolonging uh, her experience at the Palazzo thinking it's not going to be that bad, whatever happens. Mm. And that makes sense. That that lines up with the Tanya that we know. I love that moment when she was first getting ready and putting on the dress and she comes out and Quentin tells her, let's see your big, beautiful ass and that amazing symphony of salmon, which not only do I love that line, but I love Coolidge's performance there because you see her, my reaction, if someone was in my bedroom right after I had got finished changing and walked out, I would be alarmed. And she is for like a split second, but then because he comes in with a compliment, her emotion goes right to this big smile, which I feel like is Tanya in a nutshell, which is like, she's very much like, and Quentin knows to play into this, which is that like, as long as you keep her complimented, you know, affirm her in any way that you can, she's not gonna question anything. So I think what will be very interesting to see with episode seven is, sort of where we will land with this picture. Is she, is she even going to remember it? Will she think it's a figment of her imagination? Where will her head go with that? I do think it was interesting, and this is something I enjoy. We talk a lot on Survivor about the way in which like the show is quite heavy-handed in how it presents things. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a large number of viewers, not large, I have to imagine there's some viewers that saw that photograph and had no dots connected in their head because... You have to, I, I think that required a little bit of digging. Like if you weren't Do you want to explain it, for anybody listening that might not have made those dots? Totally. Yeah. So for a lot of people online have speculated about this for weeks and had it confirmed in this moment, which is the fact that Greg and Quentin know each other. It's in fact that in episode five, when Quentin tells the story about the cowboy that he met in the American West, a heterosexual cowboy that he fell in love with that did not share the feelings towards him, and he mentions the fact that he still would do anything for that cowboy even today, when Tanya discovers that picture in Quentin's room, that picture is in fact confirming the fact that the cowboy in question is Greg, and that when Quentin was on the phone, excuse me, when, when, uh, When Greg was on the phone in episode two outside, it was Quentin he was on the phone with. But I think it's interesting choice from Mike White to show us that photo. And you know, you get two cutaways of Tanya having the realization. So I think it's like, you could get there pretty easily, but I still did appreciate the fact that it wasn't, you know, you almost like thought a a lesser showrunner or writer or director would sort of give you a flashback in that moment to Greg on the phone Mm. to sort of like, 
you know, make sure that we're fully piecing this together. I like the fact that mm-hmm. it's still, you could walk away from this episode still not knowing what I, the thing that I think many people realized last week. This was sort of like, last week was the first clue. This week was like the big second clue. And then I think in the finale, we will have everything, you know, come out explicitly. And it's so interesting with what Tanya knows and what she does uh, with the information that she gleans, right? Where it's like in in one scene, she's finding out that Jack is fucking who is supposed to be his uncle. And then she sort of sits on that and does what she does with the conversation with Portia and, and like insinuates that she may know something to Quentin and then changes the subject or the subject gets changed and she goes along with it. And I, it's curious, like, how much of this is them playing her and how much of it is her, her playing them, where she sees this photograph of Quentin and her husband, and we, sh- we must believe that she recognizes her husband, Greg, in this photograph, and then she turns around and Niccolo is standing there naked, ready to have sex with her. And she puts the photograph down and goes on with the sex. And it's like, is she so shallow that seeing a hot naked man in front of her puts all of this out of her mind? Or does she file that, you know, along with the rest of the information she has collected at the at the Palazzo and go, I'm going to have my fun now and I'll deal with this information I've learned tomorrow morning. Right. I, I think there's an element of like, she's coked out. <laughs> That's also factoring in the decision making. So I don't necessarily know if it was like, she was able to compartmentalize quite the way you, hmm. you're you presenting it here. I mean, that would be lovely. I think there's an element of her just general confusion mixed with the drug adult state she was in that sort of made this like, what's the stimuli in front of me? So in one moment, it's the picture. At the next moment, it's a non-prosthetic cock. And so she's sort of like, you know, going where the wind takes her. I did want to mention, I do think that the opening credits are worth unpacking. I feel like after the fact, we will be looking at those opening credits. And, you know, I mentioned earlier the shot of Simona Simona Tabasco and seeing that same bird from Cameron's leg. But I think there are more clues hidden in plain sight around what imagery is showing with what actor. I am not going to, you know, be one of those people to create the TikTok video breaking it down. But I will say I do appreciate those people that do do that. In fact, I'm sure there is a TikTok video out there right now unpacking the opening credits and what it might mean. But I do think there are a lot of hints there. And see, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical, to be honest with you. Like, I'm not saying that it's not possible. But do you think that there would be purposeful misleads or you don't think there's anything to glean? (sighs) If this was the mall, I would be looking for the clues. But this isn't the mall. Uh, I just, I'm open to the idea that there are clues in the opening theme, but I'm just really skeptical that they would go to that effort. Mm-hmm. Okay. And particularly because, like I said, it's just based on what I know about the White Lotus from season one, that the death ended up being so sort of inconsequential in retrospect to like all of the the wondering that we were doing as an audience that I'm like are they re- are they really ramping it up that hard for season 2 and maybe they are maybe that's the show Mike White wanted to make in season 2 of the White Lotus and maybe it'll be something different in season 3 but i just don't see you know with the hindsight of knowing how season 1 wrapped up 
that this would be mole level clues and Easter eggs hidden throughout every aspect of this show. Okay. I don't know. I'm open to it. I would be thrilled. I would be thrilled. It's not that I don't want it. I would actually be like really excited to find out there was Easter eggs in the theme, especially given sort of like the cultural significance the theme song has gained throughout the season, uh, that, that the actual theme was important because, you know, the conversation has been like, never skip the theme. And it would be interesting if there was a whole other layer to that where it was like, well, you should have been watching even more closely and not just like do do doing to the song. Um, Curveball. So I'm open to it. Do you think Mike White is a fan of the mole? I think he, I think he probably likes it. Yeah. I mean, if he's a fan of modern survivor, I would hope he likes the mall. (laughs) The bar is low. Okay, the other thing I wanted to add, too, what do we think the likelihood is of Laura Dern showing up in the finale? Because Michael Imperioli posted on Instagram uh, a Laura Dern appreciation post, which got me really hopeful. As one does. As one does. Um, But then Laura Dern commented on it, saying it was great working with you over the phone. Um, sort of implying that what we've seen so far is her journey. Now, obviously, we know there's history with Laura Dern and Mike White, most famously with the series Enlightened, which, by the way, could you imagine the Enlightened universe and the White Lotus universe coming together? (laughs) Because that would be a real thrill. If nothing else, though, I am hopeful that Enlightened will get a third season at some point. Like, a la The Comeback. I just feel like knowing how HBO's investment in Mike White is only going to continue to grow with the success of this and knowing they have this, you know, cult series who Laura Dern star has only risen in the years since. Uh, yeah. Anyway. So, so we have reason to believe from what Laura Dern has said, we're not getting Laura Dern, but there are people online, you know, there are people online that are neighing Mia's singing voice. And there are people online speculating about Laura Dern popping up in the season finale. What are you thinking? I would be surprised if they used her only for a voice. But I have to then wonder, then how does she show up? And is she going to show up for Albie? Is she going to show up for Bert? I don't think she's showing up for Dominic. So perhaps if Albie or Bert bite the dust... Like, maybe she would show up, but then is she needed? Why would she have to show up? Uh, I I just wonder how they would shoehorn her in, or perhaps I worry about how they would shoehorn her in. Uh, So, obviously, I would love to see her. I'm doubtful that she will show up. Okay, fair enough. But I will say, I will say, if we're talking conspiracy theories, so Dom's wife is played by Laura Dern. We also know that his daughter is named Kara, and one person with the actual name Kara has appeared already uh, as showing up at the end of this week, and that is Kara from Survivor 37, Mike White's tribe mate, uh, who appeared alongside the iconic Angelina in the scene uh, before Daphne discovers the body in the water. I'm not saying she's playing Laura Dern's daughter, but 
if we're throwing conspiracy theories no, out there, I mean, there's one to think about. Please, by all means. Now, now, did that seem like the kind of person who was showing up at a resort because one of their family members died, or, or even, even if they don't die, that you know she's showing up to her uh, family that's in in absolute shambles because her dad was cheating on her mom? Didn't give me that vibe. What are you saying about <laughs> Kara's <something>. acting? <laughs> I thought Kara actually did quite well. I think they both did quite well. Did you hear yeah. um, when Megan Fahey was on Las Culturistas, uh, she talked about the fact that Angelina was apparently like really giving a performance um, mm-hmm. and really reacting big to the discovery of the body in the water. And Mike had to go over to her and kind of pull her back. But you know what? They always say the best actors, you want to take it too far and have someone yeah. pull it back versus, you know, the inverse. So Try to pull it out of yeah. them. Now, and what's really interesting, what's funny about that story is that she says, as they pull the body out of the water angelina was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing i went back and rewatched the scene and they actually never show angelina as they take the body out of the water well that's a problem. like she's not even not even in the background in a crowd shot so we need uh, the angelina cut we need the angelina cut now before i ask you if you have anything else to add just because it's top of mind for me so for those of you who are first-time listeners to drop your buffs, ordinarily we choose an emoji um, from the episode and we have our listeners uh, comment in the comment section of the Instagram posts with the emoji. Sort of like, what is the reasoning, Sean? I think it's just like an affirmation to us that people are listening. Like, I don't really know the reason, but I'm thinking uh, right- Because it's fun. It's fun. It boosts engagement, helps more people find yeah. us in suggested posts. I'll tell you that. Great. That's the real reason. Okay, well- but, uh, it's, it's fun to feel like you're in on, us, uh, on an inside joke. Great. Do you want to be on an inside joke? Do this. Great. Well, for today, let's change things up a little bit. Um, because this is a Survivor podcast, but we're talking about the White Lotus, I would love to know in the comment section which survivors would you, survivor or survivors would you like to see on season three of the White Lotus? For those that don't know, obviously we got Angelina and Kara this season. In season one, we got Alec Merlino cameoed. Uh, actually, kind of had a bit of a part, you know, more, yeah, yeah on season one. Or, several episodes. Yeah, recurring yeah. part, right? Uh, on season one of the show. You know, there was a world in which the famous Murray Bartlett, Lucas Gage ass-eating scene could have involved Alex's character because totally. he is in the room partying with them at yeah, first. He parties with them, yeah. Hey, I'd like to watch that. Um, anyway, comment section, which survivor or survivors do you want to see on season three of The White Lotus? Tag or them if just, you can. Not just, not just see on The White Lotus, but like, which survivors do you want to see vacation at The White Lotus? Wow. <laughs> Okay, wait, but that's different. It is a different. Okay, question. wait, I'm I'm here for that, but just for the sake of this comment, to keep it <laughs> maybe next week, yeah, maybe to keep the week. prompt singular, not to shoot down. <laughs> I'm not I'm not yes knowing, but um, just okay. for this one, who do you want to yeah. see cast on season three of the White Lotus, and then we'll we'll do something around who from Survivor we want to see on the White Lotus. Um, yeah, that is definitely we will put that in the pipeline. Anything else that we didn't cover here today that you want to cover um, in this hour and fifty minute plus episode that we are recording? Oh my gosh! Well, I just want to say because we didn't talk about it too much, the party scenes were so fantastic of the party at the palazzo, uh, the cuts, the music, and I mean like all of the Italian music that they have used has been just incredible over the course of the season. But that song, which I do not have the name of. Uh, on hand right now was so fun and is getting added to my playlist and 
I just felt like the the way that it was shot was so, so good with Jennifer Coolidge uh, in her salmon dress, just twirling for all the girlies uh, at the party was so fun. Mm. That song is called Chow Chow, and it is by <laughs> La Representante de Lista. I like how you say it, like Chow Chow, like the dog food. <laughs> chow, but it's Chow, like ch- Chow Chow. 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 As in like chow. Yeah. Yeah. Chow. <laughs> okay. Okay. That was great. Loved that. Love this episode. Love White Lotus. I mean, I'm sure our recap of the finale will not be an hour and fifty minutes, but like we did that thing we did the thing where we recapped the whole season that we weren't said we weren't gonna do, but you kinda had to. We'll do a mailbag episode at some point, but I'm going to encourage people to hold off on them for now because we will not play them in the next episode, and I don't want anyone to leave a mailbag question that will become irrelevant because of what transpires in episode seven. Mm. So we will put out a call for voice memo, questions, thoughts, etc. in our next episode. But I just want to say, quick shout out, if you are new here, you have not listened to Drop Your Buffs before, I want to thank you so much for sticking with us for nearly this two-hour podcast um, that is not unusual for Sean or I. And I definitely would encourage those of you listening who have never watched Survivor before to check out season 37 of Survivor with Mike White. I don't think it is the best gateway season, but I think if you're here strictly because of the White Lotus and you've avoided Survivor for 22 years, I think that in this context, start you in on 37 and... uh, and check out other episodes of Drop Your Buffs. I think it's a, a worthwhile listen if I do say so myself. Yes, and for those of you who are Drop Your Buffs fans, we have a big treat in store for you. Tomorrow we are talking to an icon, a legend, and a winner of Survivor to get their thoughts on Survivor 43, the new era, and, uh, you know, just Survivor in general. And we're going to dive a little more into their seasons as well. So that's going to be super fun. Plus, we will have our recap of Survivor 43, as usual, coming later this week. Uh, That is ready to wrap up as well. White Lotus is wrapping up. Survivor is almost wrapping up. I think next week is the finale. So looking forward to that. And you can find more Drop Your Buffs at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Drop Your Buffs. Follow us on Instagram at Drop Your Buffs Pod, where you will be commenting the Survivor players you want to see cast on season three of The White Lotus, which I read a rumor may take place in Japan. I don't know how much stock we can put in rumors. I don't think that is true. (laughs) I also heard a rumor it would be in Australia. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) White Lotus AU. Okay. Hey, Mike White is a Survivor fan. Maybe he wants to go to Australia. I love that the White Lotus, by the way, is t- is borrowing from the old school survivor of like changing locations every season. Like it does add a whole element, a Survivor-esque element to the show. Okay, thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Just remember when I'm home again.